Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Nick Grimm. Tonight, NATO agrees to ramp up its military presence on Ukraine's doorstep, while Vladimir Putin's plans take a hit as one of his warships is destroyed. So what's Russia's next move? Also, the fallout from a leaked draft security deal between China and the Solomon Islands, what it could mean for Australia, and a New South Wales animal cruelty case sets a precedent for bulldog owners and breeders, leaving them open to animal cruelty charges if they don't treat their dogs for a common breathing problem. I think it's really unfair that a lot of people will be buying these dogs and they're forking out thousands and thousands of dollars and then shortly after they're finding out they then have to incur thousands and thousands of dollars in treating what are inherent issues with that breed of dog. But first tonight, the Solomon Islands government is standing by a controversial draft deal which Australian officials fear could lead to a Chinese military presence in the Pacific Island nation. The draft agreement, which was leaked on social media yesterday, appears to provide a framework for Chinese troops and military assets to be deployed to Solomon Islands. Foreign Affairs reporter Stephen Jedgetts joins me now. Stephen, why does the Solomon Islands say it wants this agreement with China? Well, honestly, after reading the statement twice, I'm still not entirely clear here what is driving uh, this entire initiative. Uh, In in a statement, Solomon Islands government uh, says that it wants to expand development and security cooperation with more countries. This is under its policy of friends to all, enemies to none, it says. It also says it wants to do this because it will improve the quality of life of our people, as well as addressing soft and hard security threats. Now, when it comes to security threats, you you can see the logic there, but exactly how this agreement might improve the quality of life in Solomon Islands remains, uh, at least to me, a a bit of a mystery. Now, it also intriguingly says that there is a, quote, development dimension to this agreement, um, which is interesting because the draft document that was leaked online seemed very, very much focused uh, on the questions of military power uh, and uh, the, uh, the legal frameworks necessary to permit Chinese personnel to potentially move through Solomon Islands. So exactly what that development dimension is remains a mystery, but it's referred to repeatedly in this statement. So evidently, Solomon Islands believes it's an important part of what it's pursuing. And let me ask you this, what isn't included in the statement? Plenty. And the most important thing that we don't yet know is is the draft statement, which has been verified as genuine and which has been now spread wide and uh, far and wide on social media, is that version the current version? Because many of the very broad elements uh, of that draft agreement um, are the ones that have really stirred alarm in Canberra, in particular those ones talking about Chinese troops or police being allowed access to Solomon Islands to guard Chinese projects or, or Chinese citizens, uh, reference to replenishment of uh, Chinese Navy vessels uh, in uh, in Solomon Islands. It's simply not clear reading this document whether what we have seen is an early draft or an ambit claim by China or something that's actually now been negotiated or close to finalised by the two countries. Uh, Reading this statement, you're absolutely no clearer on that point. And how likely is it to calm fears in Canberra? 
it won't calm fears in Canberra at all. Now, the government is sort of hinting that it's in uh, negotiations, if you like, or at the very least talks with Solomon Islands, presumably in an effort to, if not scuttle this agreement. Uh, And there's every sign looking at this statement that Solomon Islands isn't willing to do that, but at the very least to dilute it, perhaps to get rid of or excise some of those broader and more worrying uh, sort of uh, framework points, which might allow, for example, uh, potentially down the track, a Chinese naval presence in Solomon Islands. Uh, But there's nothing in this agreement um, or in this statement here that hints towards that. So if there are any negotiations happening, and I think they almost certainly are, then that's being done behind closed doors. Our foreign affairs reporter, Stephen Jedgett's there. A landmark court ruling today in Victoria may have dealt a setback to Australia's efforts to lower its emissions by looking towards renewable power sources. This case has seen the operators of a wind farm ordered to stop making noise at night and pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to neighbours for sleepless nights. John Zakula and Noel Uren successfully sued the Bald Hills Wind Farm and have been awarded $260,000 in damages for distress and annoyance caused by noisy wind turbines. Observers say the case establishes a legal precedent which could have implications for other wind farm operations across the country. John Daly reports. In the rural hamlet of Tarwin Lower, 175 kilometres southeast of Melbourne, a wind farm has been sued for being a noisy neighbour. The droning sound of turbine blades have caused distress and many sleepless nights for some nearby residents. Noel Uren's complaints were ignored by the operator and the regulators, so he took his fight to the Victorian Supreme Court, and he won. It's taken us, taken us a hell of a big fight. And um, I, I, I just hope that, that there's a lot of other people in the same situation get the same result as us. And, and I, hope, I hope there's a bit of justice done because um, there's a lot of other people around in Victoria and it's probably in Australia going through the same stuff that we're going through. And, and, and I just all going to say, keep going if you can, because no one's above the law. Noel Uren and his fellow neighbour, John Zakula, were awarded a total of $260,000 in damages for distress and annoyance caused by noisy wind turbines. Their lawyer, Dominika Tanik, says the men complained to the wind farm operator of roaring noises at night, but their concerns fell on deaf ears. So for Mr Zakula, he was, was really interfering with his sleep to the extent that he was leaving his home at night time driving down to the beach and sleeping in his car. How were they treated by the the, the, the company that, that owns this wind farm? Appallingly. Her Honour found that their conduct was high-handed, uh, but they treated them, I think, as Her Honour found, as just troublemakers. Um, didn't believe them. It was gaslighting, made them question their own reality. In a precedent-setting decision, the judge ordered a permanent injunction on the wind farm to stop it making noise at night in three months' time. The court found it had not complied with its noise permit conditions. In a statement, Bald Hills Wind Farm said, We are currently absorbing the judgment and its implications and therefore will not be commenting specifically about the ruling detail at this stage. Dominika Tanik says the ruling sends a clear message to other wind farms in Australia. Now have a precedent where a judge has said, well, you're entitled to sleep and if you can't sleep and the operator doesn't address your complaints, you can go to the court 
and the court will shut down the wind farm. Dominika Tanik says regulators such as the Victorian EPA, local council and clean energy regulator have failed to do their job in enforcing noise permits on this wind farm. Everyone has been hands off. No one has taken responsibility for regulation and just allowed. The part of the problem has been that the operator has self-regulated and asserted its own operational compliance for the last six years and the court said it did not demonstrate that it was compliant. Advocates for wind energy say the outcome is disappointing. Andrew Bray, National Director with Community Renewable Advocacy Group, RE Alliance, says it's unclear what the implications will be for other wind farms. Uh, It's a pity the case has gone as far as it has, um, but it's difficult to say uh, to what extent it's going to set up any kind of precedent going forward. In, um, In Victoria, the Victorian government's established a new framework to provide clarity around how wind farms should operate safely for, for near neighbours. That uh, framework will come in, into play soon. Bald Hills Wind Farm has 42 days to appeal the decision. John Daly reporting. You're listening to PM on radio on the ABC Listen app and via podcast. I'm Nick Grimm. Coming up, the Ben Robert Smith defamation case with the Federal Assistant Minister for Defence today grilled over whether he fed information about the decorated war veteran to journalists to boost his own political profile. Claims he's denied. A month after Russia brought wide-scale war back to Europe, world leaders have convened in Brussels for a flurry of NATO, G7 and European Council meetings to try and bolster support for Ukraine. NATO has confirmed that it will deploy 40,000 more troops to Slovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria and Romania along its eastern flank, and its members promise more sanctions and military aid. But that still falls short of what Ukraine says it needs to preserve Europe's security. Nell Whitehead reports. Thousands of Ukrainians risk their lives every day to flee Mariupol and head north to Zaporizhia. I I lost any hope because people were not stopping. And when it happened, it was a miracle. Anastasia Horechkina is a student. Her family had to search for two days under heavy shelling to find someone who'd give them a lift out of the bombarded city. People started praying all together out loud. Children were scared. They were crying. I had a panic attack there. I thought that, you know, after we escaped Mariupol, I didn't want to die on the road, on, on the way to Zaporizhia in the bus. They're the lucky ones. They made it to safety. Mariupol, once home to 400,000 people, has been flattened by weeks of Russian bombardment. It's a campaign of cruelty and a warning to other Ukrainian cities. But still, Ukraine fights on. The latest British intelligence update says that Ukrainian forces have struck high-value targets, including a landing ship and ammunition storage depots in Russian-occupied areas. The US says that Ukrainian troops are pushing back Russian forces around the capital, Kiev. But Ukraine needs ever more help. As Western officials convened at emergency meetings in Brussels on Thursday, Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, made his first appeal in English. The war of Russia is not only the war against Ukraine. Russia started the war against freedom as it is. This is only the beginning for Russia. Russia is trying to defeat the freedom of all people in Europe. 
NATO is sending more troops to its eastern flank. Its members promise more military assistance and are tightening the financial screw on Russians who are complicit in the war. The US has imposed new sanctions on dozens of defence companies and members of Russia's parliament. Britain has extended its sanctions to include 65 more Russians. And Australia is sanctioning the autocratic Belarusian leader, Alexander Lukashenko, and his family, proxies of the Russian president. President Vladimir Putin. The US President Joe Biden says the West remains united in its response. Everything that Putin has tried to do from the beginning is to break up NATO, break up NATO. He'd rather face 30 independent countries than 30 united countries with the United States of America. Not a joke. But the help still falls well short of what Ukraine says it needs, which is bigger equipment, including fighter jets from Poland and a full boycott of Russian energy. Michael Shoebridge is a defence expert at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and says some of the early Western resolve is faltering. I think that it's it's a real positive that NATO has moved quickly from the start of the conflict. But we've already seen that NATO's support is behind the curve of the Ukrainian military's need. Things like uh, air defence systems uh, and uh, larger, more expensive items of military hardware like aircraft, obviously NATO and the US are finding it more difficult to think through the balance of risk. But really, the risk here is a highly successful Ukrainian military collapsing through exhaustion. And so time is of the essence and the scale and speed of NATO's support needs to be at the front of mind. One concern that has been sort of circulating for several weeks now is over the use of Russian chemical weapons. And as its tactics grow more desperate and sort of more brutal, I think the the fears about it deploying chemical or biological weapons are also growing. How great are its capabilities there? How worried should we be about that happening? Well, we know the Russians have used uh, nerve agents on their own people and also their operations with the Syrian military included chemical weapons, things like chlorine bombs and sarin gas. So they've got a track record. They've certainly got an inventory of them. But look, I think there's a simpler big point to bear in mind. If you're a Ukrainian civilian in a place like Mariupol and you're being killed by airstrikes, naval bombardment and artillery fire, does it really matter to you what weapon you're being killed with by the Russians. The Russians are doing indiscriminate mass-scale killing. That's why the scale and range of NATO assistance to the Ukrainians needs to increase. Michael Shoebridge is Director of Defence at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Nell Whitehead, the reporter there. After a series of setbacks on the battlefield, it does appear that the Russian bear is stepping back from the fray to some extent to lick its wounds and perhaps prepared to lash out with even greater ferocity towards the defenders of Ukraine at a later date. International security analyst Dr Peter Layton is a visiting fellow with the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University. He's been telling me that a new offensive could be unleashed in the next 10 to 14 days. Peter Layton, Ukraine's military has been receiving international plaudits for demonstrating that they were badly underestimated by Russia. But does that invite a more devastating response from the Russians once they've regrouped and reorganised? 
It certainly does. The Russians are basically running out of people. The Ukrainian military has been able to stop the Russian advance and inflict heavy losses. Uh, NATO estimates that they've uh, lost 40,000 troops, that is, killed, injured or are captured. This also means that, that the Russians don't have any reserve forces. Most of the Russian army is now in the Ukraine, which leads on to exactly as you said, that the Russians are moving away from using soldiers and now using long-range firepower like rockets, artillery, uh, missiles and aircraft drop bombs. And, of course, as soon as they do that, that means that their firepower warfare becomes rather indiscriminate. So there are certainly issue, issues about the laws of war and Russian attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure. One month into this conflict, what can we say we've learned about Russia that we didn't know when the war began? Uh, first up, I suppose, was that uh, everybody thought the Russian military was uh, 10 feet tall. Turns out, no, it's not. It's a fairly basic military force that has a lot of trouble doing offensive ops. Now, maybe on the defensive, they would be better. But as far as invading somebody else's country, they're fairly poor. The second thing, I suppose, is a reminder that Russian forces tend to be fairly violent. We uh, saw that in uh, Syria, and it's being repeated now. What does NATO need to be seen to be doing right now in terms of its response to Russia's continuing aggression? At the moment, NATO is, is principally just uh, resupplying the Ukrainian forces. That will become more and more important because the Ukrainians have certainly used up a lot of those anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles. NATO has decided to move four extra battle groups into some central European countries there. I think that's important because they're clearly changing the supply lines from NATO countries into the Ukraine and are sending more stocks through the southern routes. NATO has been worried for quite some time that Russia will start to attack those resupply routes. And I think the second big thing that happened overnight is that NATO is definitely signalling now that Russia may use chemical weapons in the future. And if they use chemical weapons, NATO may respond in a military manner. It appears the Russians are planning an offensive for about 10 days, two weeks' time, and there's a belief growing that Russia will try to use chemical weapons as part of that offensive to break the current stalemate and the current deadlock. And certainly President Biden said that NATO will respond in kind, which could be taken as if the Russians use air-delivered chemical weapons or rocket-delivered chemical weapons, uh, NATO may actually attack the airbase or the rocket system that was launching ke the chemical weapons, as the US did in uh, Syria. At the end of the day, though, does a nuclear-armed Russia hold all the cards when the West will do anything to avoid the prospect of them being used. As Vladimir Putin becomes more desperate to win, does he also become a more believable nuclear threat? This is the big question. Is Putin a rational actor or has he lost it? Uh, and that's one that we won't actually know until the end, if you like. At the present time, it seems unlikely he would use tactical nuclear weapons. But then again, the whole war is very unlikely. I think over the last week, Putin is starting to look like a more rational and logical actor. I think things have actually sort of, if you like, have stabilised a bit and Russia's looking a bit more reasonable. That's possibly a positive sign as far as, as you say, for the possible use of nuclear weapons in the future. Can I also ask for your view on North Korea's testing of an intercontinental missile? The timing of this test won't be an accident, will it? Oh, no, I'm quite sure the timing is not an accident. It's sort of four weeks into the war, so perhaps the North Koreans did it by themselves and they're doing it at a time just to irritate the Americans and at a time when maybe people won't focus that much on them. Whether it's been coordinated with the Russians 
is hard to say. But the North Koreans and the Russians are very close, and they're our neighbours, obviously. They share a border. So we can possibly expect other incidents like this happening sort of around the globe, around, you know, sort of China and North Korea and places like that as Russia tries to, if you like, take the attention off its actions in the Ukraine. And even in Australia's own backyard, China seems intent on demonstrating that uh, any semblance of international harmony is, uh, well, those days are long gone. Certainly there's lots of, you know, sort of angry words said at times. What has been noticeable, I suppose, is that China has been relatively quiet. Now, I say relatively. uh, China has been, while the Ukraine war has been going on, has been putting pressure upon Vietnam. They've been undertaking naval exercises uh, just off the North Vietnamese coast there. And those exercises appear to be putting the pressure on the Vietnam over China's claims in the, the South China Sea. And the timing of those exercises and the pressure on Vietnam appears no accident. China clearly was well aware when Russia was going to attack and they timed those exercises for that. Normally, the Americans would be setting a carrier battle group out there just to cruise around the South China Sea at the present time. But at the moment, the US is obviously focused on the Ukraine. So to a certain extent, Vietnam's bearing the load by itself. Peter Layton, thanks very much for talking to us. Thanks for having me. And Dr. Peter Layton is with the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University. At the Ben Robert Smith defamation trial, the Federal Assistant Minister for Defence, Andrew Hastie, has denied he fed information about the decorated war veteran to journalists in order to boost his own political profile. The coalition frontbencher served in the elite SAS regiment alongside Ben Robert Smith, and he's told the court he's no longer proud of the Victoria Cross winner, but instead pities him. Ben Robert Smith is suing three newspapers after they published allegations he's a war criminal, a bully and someone who engaged in domestic violence. He denies all those allegations. Samantha Donovan is following the case. So, Sam, what's Andrew Hastie told the court about Ben Robert Smith? Well, Nick, before Andrew Hastie was the federal member for the WA seat of Canning and the assistant minister for defence, he served as a captain in the SAS from 2010 to 2015, and that's how he came into contact and, and got to know Ben Robert Smith. Uh, Mr Robert Smith's barrister, Arthur Moses SC, in his cross-examination of Mr Hastie, asked him if he dislikes Mr Robert Smith. Uh, Mr Hastie gave evidence he doesn't dislike him, but he pities him. He said he, he didn't want to be in court, but he'd been subpoenaed to give evidence and that he pities the whole process. He said it's terrible for the country, the SAS and the army, but until it's dealt with, he said we can't move forward. He added that the case has affected a lot of lives and that he loves the regiment he served in and wants to preserve the SAS. Nicky told the court that while he started off holding Ben Robert Smith in very high regard, he's no longer proud of him. And he said that was because of what he'd heard other soldiers say about Mr Robert Smith, including allegations of long-term bullying of another soldier, and also what he called the mosaic he'd put together, uh, including from his experiences on a tour of Afghanistan in 2012. Uh, And that includes the allegation that on that tour, Ben Robert Smith 
kicked an Afghan detainee off a cliff, something Ben Robert Smith denies. Uh, Andrew Hastie gave evidence that another soldier, who the court calls Person 7, had raised issues about Mr Robert Smith with him and a troop sergeant back in 2014. And that soldier was frustrated, he said, that the chain of command hadn't addressed the concerns he'd raised about Mr Robert Smith, including the cliff allegation. Uh, and Person 7 had also raised concerns that Mr Robert Smith's Victoria Cross citation included lies. Uh, Mr Hastie has told the court many of his SAS comrades thought Mr Robert Smith's public reputation after he'd received the Victoria Cross was at odds with his conduct on the battlefield. And what else has the Assistant Minister been asked about in court? Well, in challenging Andrew Hastie's reliability and, and credibility as a witness, Nick, Mr Robert Smith's barrister, Arthur Moses SC, has really grilled him about his links to the journalists being sued in this case, in particular Nick McKenzie and Chris Masters, uh, and really asked a lot of questions about the information he has passed on to them. Uh, Mr Moses put to Mr Hastie that his five-year relationship with Nick McKenzie is one of useful scratch my back and I'll scratch yours, uh, that he's given information about Mr Robert Smith to that journalist for his own self-promotion. But Andrew Hastie was adamant in telling the court that there was no back scratching involved. He denied that it was a, a codependent relationship with Nick McKenzie. He also denied that he used his relationship with Chris Masters to feed his own reputation as a politician uh, by passing on sinister information as it was called about Ben Robert Smith. Uh, it's also been put to Mr Hastie Nick that he feels beholden to Nine Media to give evidence in support of its case in this proceeding because it's agreed to indemnify him in another defamation case. He said that was absolutely not the case. Uh, and Nick, the cross-examination of Andrew Hastie in this defamation trial will continue on Monday. Samantha Donovan there. Now to today's landmark animal welfare case that could set a precedent for French and English bulldog owners and their breeders. A dog breeder in New South Wales has been convicted and fined for failing to provide surgery for several puppies born with a breathing problem that's common in some breeds of bulldogs. The Australian Veterinary Association says dogs with hereditary breathing issues shouldn't be bred, but admits vets themselves have been complicit in the problem. Isabel Rowe reports. When RSPCA Chief Inspector Scott Myers searched a garage underneath a Western Sydney vet clinic in 2020, he found eight bulldog puppies in poor condition. Flybite things, ear infections, you know, dental issues, internal parasites, um, and obviously a number of the dogs or six of the dogs were suffering from brachiocephalic obstructive airway syndrome, which is a really severe thing. You know, it actually prevents them from being able to breathe. Six French and two English bulldogs were seized and operated on to open their airways. The 68-year-old breeder has been sentenced to 18 months community service and fined $14,000. Scott Myers says the man was convicted of aggravated cruelty against three of the bulldogs whose airway syndromes were the most severe. Which was the concern for us is that there was that, you know, immediate connection to a vet clinic and these still these animals still went without 
you know, veterinary treatment for, for medical conditions mm. and, and fairly, se- you know, severe medical conditions. The case has been watched closely by the animal welfare community. Policy Director at the Australian Alliance for Animals, lawyer Jed Goodfellow, believes it sets a precedent for dog owners and breeders in every state and territory. It sends a strong message to breeders of dogs that um, have uh, certain genetics that predispose them to health and welfare problems that uh, they absolutely have an obligation under animal welfare law to provide appropriate treatment. He hopes the ruling forces unscrupulous breeders out of the industry to prevent bulldog owners ending up with expensive vet bills. I think it's really unfair that a lot of people will be um, buying these dogs and they're forking out thousands and thousands of dollars to, to purchase the dogs. And then shortly after, they're finding out that they, they then have to incur thousands and thousands of dollars in treating uh, what are inherent issues with that breed of dog. Studies suggest at least 66% of French bulldogs have a breathing condition called brachycephalic obstructive airway syndrome because of their short skulls and flat faces. The Australian Veterinary Association has developed a new policy which it says should also help prevent the breeding of brachycephalic dogs. But the association's Dr David Neck admits vets have directly contributed to the problem. Many of these dogs are physically unable to breed. They, they don't have the aerobic capacity to mate, so artificial insemination has been employed at length to, to, to get pregnancies happening, thereby allowing the genetics for not being able to breed to come into the next generation. So vets are complicit in this uh, along the way as well, and we do need to change The Veterinary Association's policy suggests bulldogs should be genetically screened before they're allowed to be bred at a vet clinic. But Dr Neck says it is just a recommendation. It's not a law. gives us leverage now to go to politicians and say, this is what the vets think. Do we need to develop some laws to correct the way these dogs are bred? He warns those looking to buy a bulldog should purchase from registered breeders who subscribe to an industry code of practice. Narelle Spencer is one of those people. She breeds British Bulldogs for a living in southern Sydney and is secretary of the British Bulldog National Council. And she's angry her industry is tarred by people who choose to breed unhealthy dogs. Responsible breeders always try and breed the very healthiest you can. There's also people who are not regulated who go, I might have a litter with my dog. And then suddenly they see dollar signs they're not regulated. They don't belong to a club. They don't belong to a an organisation. They're breeding wholly solely as the breeding machine to make someone money. British Bulldog breeder Narelle Spencer ending Isabel Rowe's report. And that's PM for this week. PM's producer is David Cody. Today's show was produced by Gavin Coote. Technical production provided this week by Scott Johnston and I'm Nick Grimm. David Lipson will be here with the PM team next week. And stay with ABC Radio. There'll be updates from ABC News throughout the evening. Thanks for your company this week. Have a great weekend.